Welcome to our podcast, Immunization Morning Commute, Debunking Vaccine Myths. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck. In this episode, Dr. Frank Shervenek and Dr. Jill Rabin discuss the various vaccine myths they have encountered in their respective obstetrics and gynecology practices and the importance of helping patients separate these falsehoods from scientific fact. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccines one. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Chervenak is Chair of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Lenox Hill Hospital and is an Associate Dean for International Medicine at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in Hempstead, New York. Dr. Rabin is the Vice Chair of Education and Development in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, North Shore University Hospital, Long Island Jewish Medical Center, Northwell Health in New Hyde Park, New York. She is also a professor of obstetrics and gynecology in the Zucker School of Medicine and professor in the Center for Health Innovations and Outcomes Research. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Chervanek will begin our discussion. It is a pleasure to be with you today. Jill and Frank are here, and we want to discuss a very important topic. It's the topic of vaccines in obstetrics and gynecology, the good and the bad. There's much good, but there are some challenges. The good news is, is that vaccines are the key to dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And as of today, a little over half of the adults in the United States have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. And there are problems though, because we're meeting some resistance and hesitancy. And part of that is due to misinformation that's out there. I realized this when recently I was making rounds on labor and delivery, and I spoke to one of my nurses, and she was administering the vaccine at one of our sites. And she said it was going well, and I asked her, well, tell me, when did you receive your vaccine? And she expressed, well, I didn't take the vaccine because I wanna get pregnant and it may cause infertility. So Jill, what are the facts? And please, could you help us with this? Do, do vaccines in COVID-19 cause infertility? What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, Frank, thanks for that excellent question. I recommend coronavirus vaccination to all patients who are pregnant, who are planning to become pregnant, and who are breastfeeding. And there is absolutely no scientific evidence to indicate that the coronavirus vaccine causes infertility. The science shows and the data demonstrates that there is no association between the vaccines. COVID, also the other non-live virus vaccines, the Tdap and the influenza, which we'll talk about, there's no association between these non-live virus vaccines and infertility. 
and the Association for Reproductive Medicine, the American Congress of OBGYN, and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine recommends that patients planning pregnancy get vaccinated. Patients planning pregnancy, Frank, do not want to impede their fertility and they want the best outcome for themselves and their baby. And so false beliefs are actually incompatible with a fertility goal. There are unfounded claims linking COVID-19 vaccines to infertility, which have been scientifically disproven. And the statement from American Congress of OBGYN, the Society for Reproductive Medicine and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine indicates that there is no evidence. And as experts in reproductive health, we continue to recommend that the vaccine become available to all pregnant individuals. ACOG assures patients that there is no evidence that the vaccine can lead to loss of fertility. These claims have been scientifically disproven. Now, while fertility was not specifically studied in the clinical trials of the vaccine, no loss of fertility has been reported among trial participants or among the millions of women who have received the vaccines since their authorization. We know that we're dealing with a devastating disease that causes loss of life, and we're dealing with the vaccine where there are minimal side effects, which are almost always can be dealt with. But this is a devastating disease that has cost us over half a million lives. Again, this is not a cause of infertility. Jill, you couldn't state it any better. It's so, so sad that these myths, this junk science persists, and even among our nurses, it persists. Even among educated people, it persists. And it's our duty as the physicians and everyone who's listening to this podcast, please take the vaccine yourself and please dispel these ridiculous myths. I would like to just elaborate a little bit on what Jill has expressed and talk a little bit about pregnancy. Vaccines are nothing new in pregnancy. First, for preconception care, vaccines are done routinely. Measles, mumps, rubella, and varicella are recommended as preconception care so that they get on board to avoid problems for both the fetal patient and the pregnant woman. In addition, at 27 to 36 weeks, Vaccines are given for tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. And this is shown to give protection to the neonate. These are done routinely, both during the preconception and during pregnancy today. And in addition, influenza is recommended today. This is even before the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic. And women throughout pregnancy are recommended to have the influenza vaccine. Something Jill and all our listeners need to understand is that in pregnancy, the immunologic status is relatively depressed and it makes sense. The pregnant patient is carrying another individual. So it makes sense that their body's immunology is depressed a little bit. And we've known this for decades. They're more susceptible to URIs and other diseases. So especially for influenza, 
it's important that they get vaccines. And this has been recommended for quite a while. And there has not been any, any teratogenic or ill effect to the fetal patient from all the years using the influenza vaccine. Now let's move on to this COVID-19 vaccine. It is true that the COVID-19 vaccine was not done in randomized clinical trials for pregnant patients. Why is that? Because the drug companies didn't want to have liability. This is the sad truth of our medical legal system. It's sad but true, but that's the reality. We have to look at the cold hard facts. As Jill has expressed, COVID-19 is a bad disease. Over half a million lives have been lost in our country. With all the listeners to this podcast, I'm telling you, many of you have lost people. I've lost one of my doctors here at Lenox Hill due to COVID-19. What we know is that pregnant women are especially susceptible to the ill effect of COVID-19. They have a higher infection rate, a higher death rate, higher ICU admissions, higher risk of long-term sequelae. In addition, the fetal patient is at risk because of more preterm births, more pregnancy losses. But you may say, what about teratogenic effect from the vaccine? It just ain't so. This is an mRNA. This doesn't enter the nucleus. As I mentioned, the long experience with influenza vaccine isn't there. And I'm telling you, there was a paper just today, Jill, in the New England Journal of Medicine, you sent it to me uh, a little bit, a little while ago, reporting on 35,000 patients um, with no ill effect in pregnancy, either to the pregnant woman or to the fetal patient. And we look up the CDC website, I'm delighted to say the experience is now over 100,000 patients that they monitor, no ill effect to either the pregnant patient or to the fetal patient. And this is so important. We can talk about theoretical risks and the importance of randomized clinical trials. Of course, it'd be better to have a randomized clinical trial, but please, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are dying from this. It makes no sense to risk a woman's life and long-term sequelae for theoretical risk that have never proven to have ill effect to the fetal patient. So I please, I can't recommend any less fervently take the vaccine. One more point, because some of you may ask the question, well, maybe you shouldn't do this in the first trimester. Forget about it. Take the vaccine as soon as you can get the vaccine. This is so, so, so important in the first, second, or third trimester, because the sooner you get it, the sooner you can get the immunity. And the good news is the immunity will be transferred to the fetal patient and to the neonate. If I'm passionate about this, I'm so passionate, and I'm disappointed to hear, of course, not at our hospitals, but from others, that some obstetricians are recommending don't take the vaccine during pregnancy. We've looked into this internationally, 
and I'm disappointed to announce that some countries, I'll mention the countries, the Netherlands and Austria, don't recommend giving the vaccine in pregnancy. Israel is a pathfinder where they have pushed this and have led the world in giving the vaccine. So I, I just want to reverberate what Jill introduced, that we must recommend the vaccine. As she said, for infertility patients, I reverberate this for pregnant patients. And Jill, can you pick up this theme? What about for patients who are breastfeeding? What are your thoughts about breastfeeding patients? Well, I just want to reiterate, Frank, that we've all heard little stories and anecdotal evidence is not science. These are vaccine preventable illnesses. Uh, the, these illnesses are common and dangerous and not COVID especially over half a million deaths, but also whooping cough and flu, especially in pregnancy, as you mentioned, the immunosuppressed state and the vaccine related adverse events are rare and manageable. So in terms of breastfeeding, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, American Congress of OBGYN and the American Midwives Association recommends COVID-19 vaccines be offered to lactating individuals. Now, again, as you said, Frank, lactating and pregnant individuals were not included in the clinical trials, in most of the trials. The COVID-19 vaccine should not be withheld from lactating individuals because they do need their immunity as soon as possible. And theoretical concerns, as you mentioned, regarding the safety of vaccinating lactating women do not outweigh the potential benefits of receiving the vaccine. There is no need, no need to avoid initiation or discontinue breastfeeding in patients who receive the COVID-19 vaccine. And that's from the ABM from 2020. Now I have weighed all of the available data the benefits against the risks, and I recommend the vaccine on evidence-based and ethics-based grounds. And for the healthcare providers listening today, the strongest recommendation that your patients will listen to are your recommendations, not what they read on social media. They will listen to their providers. And as Frank mentioned, uh, the, there's a large database of the past mRNA vaccine trials, a lot of data. Um, and the mRNA are non-living vaccines. They do not enter the nucleus. They do not affect DNA genetic material. They do not cross the placenta. And the CDC's quote is that these vaccines, the COVID-19 vaccine is unlikely to pose a risk to pregnant women and their fetuses. Jill, perfect. I have to pick up on a word you expressed, ethics. For the people out there who don't know I'm an ethicist, something that I've devoted a lot of my professional career. And I wanna go into this because this is so important. Shared decision-making. There is an important place for shared decision-making in medicine in general and obstetrics in specific, where you give women options and they can make informed choices. But when the evidence is clear, it's not so much shared decision-making, you make a recommendation. For example, if we have acute fetal distress, you recommend a cesarean delivery. You don't say, what do you wanna do? It's, it's an ethical error to talk about shared decision-making in the sense, what would you like to do? You give a clear recommendation on the evidence as Jill has expressed. 
And I think we need to emphasize this. Here, the medical facts are so clear cut. You give a clear, definitive recommendation. And th this, this needs to be said clearly. Now, Jill, one other aspect um, uh, I would like you to talk about is this issue of hesitancy. And uh, women of color in particular, sometimes a resistance to this. This is, I think you know, there's been an infamous history in the United States with the Tuskegee uh, history. And it's, it's so sad because at the current time, the very people who need the vaccine the most are resisting this. For example, in New York City, the Bronx is the borough that has the lowest acceptance rates of the vaccine. Any thoughts uh, on this? Absolutely. As you mentioned, Frank, there's a basic distrust that exists in communities, in minority communities, and there is a huge push now in terms of diversity and inclusion to reestablish and re-strengthen our bonds with our patients. Now, they call it the physician-patient relationship because it is a relationship, and it is extremely important for all of us as healthcare providers to make sure that we are communicating clearly and accurately with our patients, that we learn to listen to them a little bit better, that we listen to them not just about their medical concerns, but about the issues that may be barriers to access to their care, including and especially social determinants of health. We can't really take care of our patients um, in uh, minority communities or in any community unless we know not only their medical issues, but do they have barriers to access to care, transportation, food, domestic violence, which affects far too many people. One is too many. So we need to really know our patients and establish trust with them to have them come with their questions written down and encourage them to come to each visit with their questions. And we have to spend time and listen. Now, you may say we don't have that much time to take care of people these days, but you know you have to just take care of the patient in front of you. When N equals one, that is your most important patient. And they have to feel that they can trust you and that you are going to listen to them. And when you have established that trust, they will listen to your recommendations. Jill, perfectly expressed. And can I just say both Jill and I are proud to work for the Northwell organization that makes this as a priority, working with the community, having outreaches, and to address this important, important aspect. We're winding down our time. And in the time we have left, I, I want to dispel with Jill some other misconceptions that are out there. One that persists is that deals with childhood vaccines that's so sad that it still goes on, that the vaccines used in children cause autism. This is so disgraceful. There was an article that was produced in Lancet almost 20 years ago and it was shown to be fraudulent. And the damage that was done from this, I, I've done work with my mentor, Robert Brent, a chairman of pediatrics at Jefferson. And this is, this is ridiculous that it still persists to this day, that mothers are, are afraid to have their children vaccinated. This is an abomination. Jill, could you touch on a vaccine that is relatively new 
in gynecology, the HPV vaccine. What are the current issues with this? Well, the HPV vaccine is the only vaccine we have really that can prevent cancer. It prevents cancer of the cervix, the vulva, and the vagina. And the most important time to get this vaccine is when our children are young, 12 to 14 years of age, but it is approved for men and women up to age 46. And the reason this is so important to get the vaccine young is that young people make more antibody protection when they're younger. The immune system, although depressed in pregnancy a little bit, is much more robust in the young person. So we tell our uh, parents that it is very important to vaccinate their girls and boys so that they will be protected when they become young adults and adults, when they do become sexually active. It's not a vaccine for now in terms of the sexual activity, and we have to stress that with parents. It's a vaccine like the others that protect when their children become young adults and adults. And it is also, by the way, not recommended for use in pregnant women, although women have received the, the HPV vaccine who have been found to be pregnant, and we have followed these pregnancies, hundreds of thousands of pregnancies, and there has never been a problem with a pregnancy as a result of this vaccine. But having said that, we want people to get this vaccine uh, if possible when they're not pregnant. And if women are found to be pregnant, if they've gotten a vaccine, we delay the rest of the series of three until after the pregnancy is finished. And it is safe in breastfeeding as well. A very important vaccine. It prevents cancer and cervical cancer is still a scourge in this country and worldwide and is preventable. Jill, would you comment briefly on the pneumococcal vaccine that sometimes comes up? Absolutely, Frank. I'm glad you asked me that excellent question. Now, pneumococcal is the only vaccine we have that is against a bacterial infection, pneumococcal pneumonia. And it is a pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine and the safety of the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine during the first trimester of pregnancy has not been evaluated, although women have been found to become pregnant after having received this vaccine, and no adverse consequences have been reported among newborns whose mothers were inadvertently vaccinated during pregnancy. But the pneumococcal vaccine in the non-pregnant woman is extremely important because pneumococcal pneumonia is devastating and basically life-threatening disease. Jill, I want to bring up another vaccine that I consider important, a commonality that Jill and I share. We were very close to our mothers when they were alive. And um, unfortunately, I've, I've lost my mother uh, a while ago, but I remember for many years, she suffered with shingles. And I made it a point when the shingles vaccine was available, I got the shingles vaccine. Jill, could you tell us a few words about the shingles vaccine? Um, who you recommend it for, is it efficacious? Could you tell us a few words, please? Absolutely. The shingles vaccine, commonly known as Shingrix, is two doses of the vaccine. And it's interesting, it's approved for women and men 50 and over. And we don't, although we do have people who become pregnant after age 50, um, it is not recommended um, for uh, people who are pregnant. So uh, in saying uh, along those lines, it's still uh, animal studies showed no adverse effects on fetuses uh, in this setting. However, uh, shingles um, 
mainly you do give it 50 and over, it does prevent a very devastating disease which can have incredible systemic effects, tremendous pain, tremendous rash, very debilitating. It can take several years to get over a, a serious attack of shingles and the shingles vaccine, the shingrix, both doses together given sequentially do prevent most cases of shingles. And people don't think of shingles as a vaccine for you know, people you know, under 65 or 70, but the fact is, is that it does affect people of all ages, mainly 50 and over. And I do see every week in my office, just last week I had a woman walk in 56 years old. I had been talking to her about the Shingrix and she, well, when I get older, I'll get it. And sure enough, um, she came down um, with a very, very bad attack of shingles. And it has also affected um, people, women in my family under the age of 60. Uh, and it has been very debilitating, very important vaccine. Frank, thank you for asking me that. Jill, thank you. There's so much more we could say, but we, we have to wrap up now. I think it's clear to everyone who's listened to this that so much good has come from vaccines in modern medicine. And we've just scratched the surface with this. It's so unfortunate that we live in an era where misinformation, even disinformation occurs. We won't get into politics, but th this is the sad reality today. I appeal to each and every one of you who are listening to this to do two things. First, take the vaccine yourself. You need to be a role model for everyone out there. Don't listen to the bogus information, the rumors and innuendos. This is junk science and garbage. And two, give a clear recommendation. Don't get sucked into the false ethics the rights issues, the offering, give a clear definitive recommendation because the medical facts are clear. We must end at this point. Jill and I thank you for being with us. We wish you the best and thank you so much. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash vaccine one. For all the episodes in this series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash immunization. Thank you for joining us today.